What's up, Dacalos and Doculets? A very excited DocuDotty here to talk to you about yet another Documenteers episode. Documenteers being the podcast about documentaries where we parse through documentaries and review them with our Herzog rating scale and make you smile. Because that's just all we want to do. Why don't you smile for us, huh? It ain't that bad. Don't you hate it when people say that shit? But anyway, history is being made here on The Documenteers because this episode is featuring our very first docu-series. We've been trying to figure out a way to get documentary series out there. I get a lot of requests for them. They're what people are all hot on, and I get it. I just want to be able to do them right. Angela and I, she's on this episode, and we're experimenting and know that we're not bringing someone else into the relationship. We experimented on this four-part Netflix series that everyone's buzzing about, Evil Genius by Barbara Schroeder and Trey Borzillieri. We decided to experiment on this. We watch an episode and then record talking about it. We did that with each episode. I hope it works out. But yes, this docuseries, Evil Genius, uh, this poor guy with a bomb around his neck is involved in this robbery. Everything's weird. What the fuck is going on? We are going to get into that. And I'm also excited because there's a lot of changes in the documenteers coming around. We got a couple new documenteers as you... You've already heard one, Akil. He's our newest. Next week, we will feature Ginger. And Ginger and I will be going through Rock Docs. Not exclusively Rock Docs, but but we she will be starting off her series with the, I believe it came out in 2008 or 2009, the Iron Maiden documentary, Flight 666. Seek that out, because we'll be talking about that next week. And the Shamco Studios will be featuring uh, hopefully an upgrade pretty soon and hopefully that will translate into the listening experience i'm really excited about it so after several episodes hopefully you'll notice a difference the idea of shamco studios has started out as almost a bit of a joke you know i'm uh, i've always wanted a podcast i'm pretty new to it and i'm trying to figure out how to make it the best i can get and so all the time i'm wanting to take it up to the next level for all our listeners out there i really appreciate your patience and your input documentariespodcast at gmail.com if you want to contact me there there is also we also have social networks admittedly i'm not very good at them i really just want to focus on getting this content out but it would be very encouraging if you did hit us up on social media there's a facebook fan page There's an Instagram. The Instagram is probably the most active. And there's a Twitter. Hit me up on Twitter. Uh, Engage with me. I'd love to engage right back. Sometimes I don't know what to fucking do with Twitter. And I want to get into it. But honestly, most of it's aggravating. And I know that you all know exactly what I'm talking about. But we don't want to aggravate on our documenteer social networks. We want to be friends. So be friends with us. Five stars on iTunes and a review. That would be a big help. If you've listened to a lot of our episodes and you haven't done that yet, then please, please, we're not asking for money. We don't want your money. We want your five stars and your reviews. That is the biggest help for us right now. We don't want to take from your wallet. You're trying to save that money. We get it. You need to pay some credit cards down. I understand. Do that. We just want to entertain you with stories of documentaries while you're out there in that work grind, working for the man into uh, hopefully trying to get your head above water. Believe me, man, I fucking know the feeling. Well, enough of that. Let's get into this docu-series, our first docu-series, 
released by Netflix, Evil Genius, by Barbara Schroeder and Trey Brasilieri. Keep on docking. Now, here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet, 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. Marjorie grew up to be a beautiful, smart young woman. People found her captivating, especially men who would do almost anything for her. if it was i mean there's a certain amount of immediate that's just consequence though that's not karma that's consequence the idea that like what comes around goes around in some sort of trying to find balance or like harmony i don't believe in like i think that there's cause and effect and i think that if you're a certain kind of person certain kind of things are going to happen to you or could happen to you but there's some really shitty people who have really great things and some really great people who have really shitty things happen to them and i don't it's not consistent enough for it to be a thing. That's what I'm saying. I don't believe it because there's no, you can't. Oh my gosh, Angela, how are you doing tonight? I'm good. I'm sleepy. Yeah? Mm-hmm. We'll stay up all night watching uh, <laughs> a documentary series. What do you say? Yes, we're doing something. This is a first for the documentaries. The documentaries <laughs> has been trying to wrap its head around documentary series. There's Since we've started the podcast, probably the thing I get asked the most about documentary series like yeah wormwood wild wild country and this current one came out fairly recently yeah and it's called evil genius it's a netflix show netflix is killing it because we cover we've covered so many things that are on netflix yeah the least netflix could do is to convert to a Herzog rating system. I don't think that's a small thing to ask. Oh, I thought you were going to say like free subscription. That'd be nice too, actually. <laughs> Netflix, give us a free subscription. I heard they don't even do that for people who have like comedy specials on there. Like they're not going to do that for us. Maybe people don't ask enough. So uh, Robin Wright has to pay for her Netflix subscription? I mean, I don't know. What What is Luke Cage's name? Michael Colt? Okay. Coulter? I'm shrugging. Sorry, at-home audience. Shrug. So we're breaking ground, breaking new documenteers ground. It was directed by Barbara Schroeder. She also wrote it, and there's a co-director credited, Trey Borzilieri. So Barbara Schroeder and Trey Borzilieri. She wrote it, meaning that she like wrote the narration, I guess? Yeah, I guess so. And the person who's actually doing the narrating is Trey. And this is uh, produced... By the Duplass brothers. Oh, the so Duplass. I think it's Duplass brothers. Is it Duplass? Ah. Uh, Duplass, I think. Du- now I'm doubting myself. I thought it was Duplass. And it's made by the Duplass brothers. <laughs> you know the Those du- guys. You know the Duplass brothers. Yeah. They got saddled with that mumblecore label. Duplass. It's they- Duplass. <laughs> I know it's Duplass. Okay. You think I thought it was really Duplass? <laughs> I was just thinking they probably have heard Duplass their whole life. Probably. I think I'm being clever, uh, making their name sound ridiculous. <laughs> but anyway, we haven't watched this yet. No, not we're, even a bit. We're about to watch this. What we're going to do is Angel and I are going to go sneak off on our tippy toes. 
Like that little, that little uh, sneak away noise. I was just doing it. It's like when uh, Fred Flintstone's about to start driving his little car. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to go watch the first episode of this thing, see what it's all about. We know it's a true crimey thing. We know there's like a bank heist and a, and a bomb. And a bomb. And that there's four episodes. That's, <laughs> that's what I know. So it's a good starter for our plan. So we're going to go watch episode one, and then you'll hear a little music. And when we come back, we will discuss what we just watched in episode one. We will do that with each episode. Yes. And I'm such a dick tease because I'm going to throw this amazing thing out there. And you're going to get <laughs> so excited, but you're going to have to wait until after we watch the fourth episode before I reveal it, that at the end of this Documenteers episode, yeah, there's a super surprise, super special announcement. What? And I can't wait to tell you, but I will not tell you until <laughs> after we've watched episode four. And you're not going to tell me either? Thrilling. You got to stay till the end. Hell no, I'm not telling you. What? I'm especially not telling you. So this is like, we're going to watch this documentary and talk about it as we watch it. And you're going to, on this podcast, tell me a secret that I don't know. Yeah. And, and the whole world doesn't know. This documentary series might also have its own secret. Its own bombshell. So we could be dealing with a bombshell within the documentary series, if there is one. <laughs> okay. And a bombshell with the Documenteers podcast itself. I can't wait. We need to get started on this right now. Let's go. All right. Episode one of Evil Genius. watched that first episode <laughs> wow okay was this uh, at all what you expected this would be just starting off this first episode was what i thought the whole story was but there's more and you're excited about. but there's it. more and i'm excited about it they also bookended this first episode with information about this woman marjorie deal the entire episode is completely not about her. They talk no. about her at the beginning for like a second, and then at the end, there's like a crazy thing, which we can go through. I don't know if we're going to go through all the bits. But what we learn about Marjorie just throughout is that she's an odd little girl, Marjorie Dill Armstrong. Yeah. She wasn't popular until she got a little older. And then she was really pretty. And, and, and she all got, the boys liked her, and I guess they said that men would do anything for her. And she had a master's degree in education. Yeah. She was a smart lady. And that's pretty much all we learn about her at the beginning. On August 28th, 2003, there's a 911 call. Yes. This is in Erie, Pennsylvania. There's a bomb around this guy's neck. It's a pizza guy, and he's robbing this bank. PNC Bank. And he's robbing it very casually, too. Yeah, he apparently stood in line for a second, and then he walked up to the teller, and he got a sucker, and then he asked for $250,000. He's got this thing, device clamped around his neck. It's Apparently, it's a bomb. Yeah. And he's got a gun cane, which we would find out later, like, really worked. Yeah, it was loaded. They point out at some point that he's also over top of this bomb collar wearing a guest jeans t-shirt, which begs the question, was he already wearing that guest jeans t-shirt that day, or did they tell him to put that on because then it's, like, saying yes across his chest? I thought someone had written that on him. It looked like it was handwritten, but... When they described it, they made it seem like it was a thing. And that could be a stylistic device, like a stylistic choice by 
guest jeans on that t-shirt to make it look handwritten, but that <laughs> seemed not true. This episode is brought to you by guest jeans. <laughs> What's up, guest jeans? That's a weird coincidence that guest jeans would sponsor this episode. Yeah, totally weird. Huh. The guy's name. His name is Brian, and he lives in one of those little tiny houses in the back of a bigger house. So there's some interviews with his landlord. He lives in a mother-in-law. Yeah, the mother-in-law house. It's a really cute little house. He lives there alone with three cats that are mostly indoor cats. His landlord described him as someone who seemed like just a really sweet guy and he would like dance a little bit when he got excited. (laughs) That's a weird note. That made me think of myself though. I feel like I do that. If I get excited about something, I'm kind of like, yeah, and I'll like start you know, snapping my fingers and dancing around a little bit. I wonder what Brian will get excited about other than his notebook full of sex worker names. Yes, he had a notebook full of sex worker names. Evening ladies. A lot of them. They kind of blurred out most of the information, but you could see it was a pretty long list of first names of ladies. But anyway, we're getting a little ahead. This guy, he's robbing this bank. Yeah. He seems very casual about it. And he hands the teller. It's one of those hand the teller a note. I'm wearing a bomb. But this isn't just any note. This is like a nine-page note. Well, there were nine pages of notes that he was given. Included in that nine pages were his instructions, a letter for the bank, and also a letter for the police. So he was given a very rambly nine-page informational document, basically. And he was to give each thing. And it wasn't just a, hey, give me money note. It was a rambly, long, here's why you have to give me money or this bomb is going to go off. It was basically like a, a scavenger hunt, and he had 55 minutes. Yeah, so he had to go to the bank, get the money, and then he had to get to another location, which was a McDonald's. In the notes, they drew all these little markers, and one of them was literally a McDonald's sign with golden arches. They were just having fun. Yeah, because booby-trapping someone with a bomb that's real is fun. They catch him. Please catch the guy pulling out of McDonald's. He's saying he's got a bomb. They're not sure. As casual as Brian was, he's now getting very antsy. I don't know that he even really believed it was real until the bomb started ticking. And when the bomb started, or not ticking, but like beeping, because they even said that. It's almost like he was just being like, guys, get me out of these handcuffs. Listen to me. I'm telling you the truth. And then all of a sudden it was like... This shit's going down. The note said he had 55 minutes yeah. to get, to do like this, go to McDonald's, go to the scavenger hunt, fight, find more notes apparently. Yeah. And eventually make his way to this secluded radio station. But this was a lot to do in 55 minutes. And 55 minutes is the time of an of a oven timer or like a, a, yeah. a kitchen clock. Cops are pointing their guns at this guy. They've handcuffed him. Yeah. No one's going near him. I think they realize that bomb is real. They're like, oh, shit, that's a real bomb. They call the bomb squad, but the bomb squad is like 10 minutes away, and there's a bunch of traffic because they've blocked off streets, so people will not drive down this road. Which is a pretty popular street in Erie, apparently. I don't know. Did you think this next part was going to happen? I knew that it was going to explode. It blows. I didn't think I was going to see it. We watch a bomb blow it didn't blow his head off but it apparently it knocked him backwards yes but it looks like he explodes just the image of it was very very upsetting so if you have issues with things like that i gasped out loud yeah and then probably held my face for i didn't cover my eyes because i am watching this documentary but 
Sometimes I sit with my hand over my mouth during a documentary for chunks of time, and this was definitely one of them. They said he was actually breathing for a bit, like for a little while. Yeah, he wasn't dead right away. And then right when the paramedics showed up, he pretty much died. Yeah, they couldn't save him, and the bomb squad had to continue to search him, to search his car. They had to make sure there weren't any other explosives before they could take him away. There's a news anchor saying that they're still holding guns on him. I mean... It seemed like he just straight, like he got blown up, like you wouldn't think he's alive. But the police are still holding guns onto the body. He basically just had a major chest wound, and they probably at that point didn't know how bad it was. They find notes in his car. Uh, Nine-page notes. More clues to the scavenger hunt to go to a, there's a note in a coffee jar, which leads to orange tape on a tree that says Vietnam on it. And then there's a van. A minivan pulls up. And this police officer, I think he's state police, I can't remember exactly, not verbatim, but he was talking about how they're looking at this spot where there's this tape and this clue, and then a blue van pulls up, and they seem surprised to see him, and then the blue van starts driving backwards, Yeah, and they don't follow the fucking van. Okay, I, I figured this out afterwards. They explained it right after, because the reason they couldn't follow the van per what the cop said, I think it was a state trooper, was that the cops were on the street, right? Their cars were on the street. And there was this wooded area where they found this like Vietnam thing, the Vietnam tag on the tree. The van was in the field across the way. And the van was driving towards them through the field. So I think the van had like positioned itself across a field on the other side of these trees so that they could basically surveil when... Is that a right use of that word? They could watch to see when Pizza Man showed up, but Pizza Man didn't show up. Cops showed up, so they freaked out and got away. Now, the police said they couldn't follow because they couldn't get through the trees, basically. Oh, okay. Because my first instinct was also, and you followed them, right? And then they said they couldn't, and I was like, and their license plate was, but apparently it was a really dirty van and they had no details. That damn van. And after the case was referred to the uh, feds, Mm-hmm. The FBI, the van apparently never gets mentioned again. Which is crazy because the van should be the key. You should be sending helicopters around looking for this van. They went to Brian's place and there's nothing. They have an address book with ladies of the night names in them, but no links to the bombing. They ended up having to do a surgical decapitation to ensure that what was remaining of the bomb was intact. The um, coroner was very, you could really tell that it really disturbed him to have done that really badly. Like he said that it was most a difficult decision that he'd ever made in his life. He said it was done in a very caring way. I mean, he probably just wanted us to understand that he tried to do his best to be respectful. Brian had three cats Mm -hmm. that he kept inside and he liked to take his mom out to the movies. Yeah. And he actually did scavenger hunts. I guess the paper would run clues where you could go. I've never heard of that before, but yeah. I wasn't too clear on what they were talking about. It looked like he read something in print, classifieds or something. I think it was a a game they played in the local paper, and they would basically give you some clues, and then you could go find the first scavenger hunt thing, and then you could follow the scavenger hunt, and you would win a prize if you got to the end. And it seemed like something they did maybe on like a monthly basis. He tried to do it a bunch of times, but he never won. But he loved it. We hear a reenacted reading of a, a letter from Brian's sister. And she is upset about a lot of things about how he was handcuffed, about how they held guns on him, and how they 
and not verbatim in her words, that preserving bomb remnants was more important than his body. His body. And he had to have a closed casket. Yeah, they couldn't get closure. Yeah. Brian has a co-worker. His name is Robert Panetti. And he was being interviewed and talked to. And apparently he was really nervous. He thought something might happen to him. Right. He scheduled a meet with the FBI on a Monday. Mm -hmm. And he was found dead on a Sunday afternoon. It seems like they don't have a clear answer as to why he was dead. No, they said there was no natural causes. Basically, it didn't seem to have a stroke. He didn't seem to have a heart attack. And they said they did an autopsy, but they never said what the autopsy revealed. They did talk about how people in that area, there's a lot of drug problems there and that he was someone known to have drug issues. So whether he committed suicide or there was some sort of foul play, I don't know if we have any idea. His mother is very adamant that he had nothing to do with this. They managed to reassemble the device because they were able to preserve like a large percentage. 90, I think, 90%. Well, as preserved as something that's blown up can be, but meaning they had a lot of the parts of this bomb. And they found out through reassemblage and understanding this bomb that there was a pen that if Brian had pulled it, would have given him one more hour. This bomb was basically two pipe bombs and two timers. But it looked super complicated. And there was like this pin, which I'm sure they were never even going to tell him about. Was that just a joke? There were all these wires. There was a cell phone that had nothing to do with anything. Decoy wires, parts that meant nothing, just meant to distract. There were three locks, but, oh no, sorry, four locks, but only two actually were locked. So there really were keys, apparently, at some point that he was supposed to find to get out. But it wasn't even... There were never going to be enough keys because only two, you know, like it was it was all mindfuck. He never would have made it in no, five minutes. It was impossible. They didn't find any tool evidence and they found no matches towards the stuff that was used to make this bomb. Apparently, Erie, Pennsylvania is on the northwest border of Pennsylvania, somewhere in that area. 20 minutes in either direction uh, from where Brian was. You could be in either Ohio or New York State. Yeah, but instead of giving him a route that took him out of that state, they basically took him in a giant circle within Erie, basically from this abandoned radio tower where he started, almost full circle all the way back to where that van was. An impossible task. But if he had known to pull that pin, which apparently they only say was possible through reassembling the thing, it doesn't seem like he had any information that pulling that pin could have given him another 55 minutes. No, and there would have been no way for them to communicate that with him. Unless, which there is a theory that he knew about this and he was somehow in on it. And maybe he did have some idea about that. But I don't know how I feel about that yet because I don't feel like we have all the details. Go ahead and rush to judgment. Make it. I'm not rushing right to now. judgment. If, if I had to judge, I would say he had no idea. But the reason that I, it feels fishy to me is because they talk about how when he was in the bank, he you know the, the, he got the sucker. Apparently, after he got the money, he walked out of the bank like fucking Charlie Chaplin, waving his cane around and swinging his bag of money. He wasn't in a hurry. Yeah. And if you know you only have 55 minutes, so you don't know how far they're going to make you go. Why are you jaunting around the bank? Well, he wasn't jaunting towards the end when he realized this probably was real and Brian lost his life. I know. Now we cut back to Marjorie Deal Armstrong, who is described. She, this time she's she is uh, she was talked about how she was a weird kid and grew up very pretty. Yeah. But now it talks about how smart she is and how 
mentally ill she is. Apparently one psychiatrist just said that she wasn't really mentally ill. She was just extremely narcissistic and maybe had a personality disorder. Yeah, other therapists thought that she was bipolar. Other therapists thought that she was manic or she had mania. She went to multiple doctors over the years. Uh, She would say that she used to be the prettiest girl in town. And she had some husbands and some boyfriends that met some violent ends. Her first husband hit his head on a coffee table or something, and she won 175 grand in a settlement. Yes, suing the hospital for negligence, which, who knows, a boyfriend hung himself after she moved out. Did they say five or six deaths related to her? Like, there's... There's a call. Somebody calls. This is three weeks after the bombing incident for to come to this house on Peach Street because there's a dead body in the freezer. The call is by Bill Rothstein, and a name he gives is Marjorie's name. And we are going to go into the second episode and then come back and report back to you what happens. Oh, what an episode. Oh my gosh, I can't even, I feel like we just watched a two-hour movie. There's a lot of names. We got a lot of names all of a sudden. Yeah, I started trying to pay better attention to the names in this episode because I didn't get anybody's names last time, except Marjorie. Okay, let me try to summarize a lot of what's going on. Bill is checking in because Bill Rothstein has called the, the state police. Said there's a frozen body. Yeah. And he calls and checks to see, have you got Marjorie? Have you got Marjorie? Yeah, did you go pick her up? One of the police, Ron Morgan, met Bill at a wedding. And he talked about how Bill thinks he's like a super smart dude. And Bill is the kind of guy to tell you what a brilliant person he is. Yeah, and how he's eccentric. But Bill says uh, he is afraid of Marjorie. She's bipolar, manic depressive. Morgan asked Bill to come to the station. Just come to the station. You'll be safe safe here. On uh, September 21st, 2003, Bill is interviewed. He talks about how Marjorie called him and said, there is a there is a dead body. He says he doesn't remember exactly what words she said and how she may have told him that she murdered this guy. He says he thought she murdered him, but he didn't have the exact words. And then he went and got this body and brought it to his house and put it in a freezer. And apparently this body, this had happened, we find out a little later, this body incident happened like three weeks before the heist, the heist, the yeah. bomb around Brian's neck. Let's not forget a man got blowed up. Yes. Which is how this whole thing started. And his buddy who he used to work with was just found dead. Dead body number three. And now there's a, a, a corpse in the freezer. And Bill says that he, he, he tells investigators that at first he was trying to see about maybe getting rid of it for her, trying to help her out. Six weeks from the time the guy died to when he went into the talk to the cops. The police go into Bill's house. It's trashed. There's junk all over the place. Super hoarder. Yeah, our friend the coroner's back, and he says it's like hoarders times 10. And they find the freezer behind a tarp that's running ceiling to floor. They literally said the body was in the freezer, wrapped like a side of beef. And apparently Marjorie was there. I guess they just went right in and she like appeared. Yeah, she was in the house. So she wanted them to leave and she blames 
Bill, they were saying how she was very dirty as if she didn't hadn't bathed in a very long time. Yeah, they arrest her when they got her in the car. The cops said it was so difficult to be in the car with her because it was so hot and she obviously hadn't bathed in weeks or days, but it was nasty. And we see news footage of Marjorie. She's get, she gets arrested. And so we meet the current Marjorie, but we don't meet her eyebrows because <laughs> they're not there. They're not there. <laughs> and she says that Bill Rothstein is a liar who's going to get sued. And we see video footage of Jim Roden, her boyfriend, because that's the man who's dead. Yes. And she says, she said he's been her boyfriend for 10, 10 15 years. years. Yeah. And that Bill committed this murder. Marjorie calls a reporter from jail. She does this a lot. And there's an awkward video of them turning the body freezer to the side. Yeah, and I was like, are they going to cut this body apart to preserve the freezer? <laughs> but he, they seem to be more concerned about like the instruments of death in this story than the people within there. Hey, I got a joke. I just came up with it. I hope it's better than mine. How, mine was terrible. How many Pennsylvania state troopers does it take to <laughs> screw in a light bulb? I don't know. Three. One to hold the ladder, the other to screw it in, and a third to cut the head off of a dead body oh my god we laugh because it's so very horrible i mean in light that they didn't get that much information i didn't hindsight's 2020 but they shouldn't have cut that poor guy's head they off they should have sawed the thing off yeah like the actual it was like and a let handcuff. His family have an open casket anyway they get this man out they basically said that they had to thaw the freezer completely first to get the body out because he's basically taking up the whole freezer. And this is then when they discover that he'd been dead three weeks before the heist. So they bring in Bill. Bill's being very helpful, very chatty. But when, the first, when they first bring in Bill, I just have to, real quick, when they first bring in Bill and he's talking to the FBI agent, Bill says to him, I just want you to know that I'm the smartest man in this room. Yeah. And there's only two people in that room. <laughs> him and the Fed. Rothstein at this time does not want to talk about roads or the heist that occurred because so far they have no connection to this heist. Uh, they do go back at this point and talk about how Bill was never normal. He was a rich kid who was bullied. Family ran a, a bottling company. He was a Jewish kid and he was he picked, picked on because on. of that. And we meet a Ray Borowski. He was his best friend. And he said Bill was a super intelligent guy, but he never finished anything. Yeah, we find out around this time between talking to Bill's friend and one of Marjorie's friends that they had this on-again, off-again relationship for years and years. And at some point, Bill and Marjorie were actually engaged to each other. Apparently, he never dated any other woman. Then we hear Marjorie talking about Bill to a reporter again, talking about how when they first met, she was a virgin and how he was into all kinds of kinky stuff. Like she said that he wanted only like oral and anal and yeah. that he would like lick her legs and like he wanted <laughs> to stick his penis between her legs. And she basically called him a pervert. She called him a pervert. How do you put a penis in the leg? Do I you, think you like, I think it's this thing where you, you like just hold it? the legs. Maybe you bend it you or you hold your legs the and they like. And then you move your leg until. Well, uh, I'm assuming you're moving your dick in and out of the legs. Or yeah, yeah. Or if like you, you're fucking the legs. If you're tired or it's your birthday, the person can move the leg. <laughs> if you're tired or it's your birthday. But usually, I guess you're thrusting between the crook of the leg. Yeah, it's like how some people fuck between boobs, right? But it's legs. I don't know. You also pointed out, rightly so. Oh. <laughs> that, that Marjorie looks like. 
one, one of, of your aunts. One of my aunts, my aunt Cindy. <laughs> I didn't say her name. Oh, oops. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she looks like one of your aunts. She could be one of your aunts. I'm pretty sure her one of her one of her daughters at least will hear this. <laughs> you know I'm right. You know I'm right. Text me when you know. Look, Cindy'll okay. never hear this. No. Then we cut to they're cleaning out the house. They're yeah. Cleaning out Bill's house. They have to find more uh, evidence. They're looking to see what the fuck happened. There's feces. There's two dead cats. There's stacks of government cheese. There's cash. I thought this was Marjorie's house. It was house. Marjorie's house. I was wrong, but here's the thing. Marjorie's a hoarder, and so the fuck is he. They have they a lot in common. are hoarders. I got confused as to whose house we were in. So, yeah, they completely- she hoarded the cash. She was the big cash She hoarder. was the cash hoarder. She had the dead cats. She had the feces. She had the government cheese. Listen, government God. cheese is delicious. <laughs> I grew up on government cheese, but I don't need a stack of it. You don't want to save it? I'm sure it never goes bad. I'm sure that unrefrigerated government cheese was as delicious as the day she got it. Many people are discussing Marjorie. Her friend Audie talks about how she would just take a bunch of junk and take it, like baby cribs and stuff. Shit she wouldn't yeah, even need. Yeah, she'd, she'd, she'd pull over on the side of the road and pick up other people's junk. These friends, Ken Bar, friends of hers and Jim's, Jim Rhodes, who, a reminder, is the body in the freezer. I love this. It introduced him as Ken Barnes, Marjorie's fishing, fishing buddy. buddy. They catch catfish. And, and his girlfriend. Agnes. Uh, Agnes said Jim was timid and was pretty much Marjorie's puppet. And they would get into scrapes because she was manic depressive and she would go from I love you to I'll fucking kill you. Yeah. And apparently she told people that she was going to knock him off. Like she would threaten him and say she wanted to kill him. And then it was revealed in 1984. This is the first time we hear about this. Yeah. A much younger, with eyebrows, Marjorie. Very pretty Marjorie. Very pretty. She looked like a true 80s woman. She really did. She went to trial for unloading a gun on her, was it her husband at her the time? Her boyfriend. Her boyfriend. And she said it was self-defense. She said it was self-defense, and so she was not charged. But she straight up told Ken and Agnes... Right? That she fucking made it up and killed his ass. That she got, got away with it. Yeah. So I don't know if we mentioned this, but a shotgun is also how Jim Roden died. Okay. This is now two men in Marjorie's life who've been shot with a shotgun. Short range. But Angela, c'est très dommage. C'est très dommage. <laughs> okay. C'est très dommage. C'est très dommage. The smartest man speaks French, of course. Mr. Bill is throwing out some fancy language. They say, Marjorie's accusing you of all this. And he goes, C'est très dommage. C'est très dommage. Which I know I'm not saying that right, but it pretty much means all well. Bill gives a tour of the crime scene. Talks about how he replaced the steps because there was blood on them. Yeah. Seemed like he did a lot around the house. He describes to the police like where the dead body was laying in the bed, the way he got the tarp out, the way he carried him out of the house. At this point, Bill is out on bail i guess or maybe he's not even in charge with anything so he's just cooperating oh yeah he's out on bail because he's cooperating yes bill wrote a suicide note and had attempted to slash his wrist with a razor blade but bill stopped the suicide because he remembered that there was five people in erie that he hadn't declared that he was the smartest man in town <laughs> let those people know very important Topic, and I know we mentioned this briefly, I think at the beginning, I don't know if we said this, Bill's house is on Peachtree Street. Is that the name of the street? Yeah. That's the same street where the pizza was delivered that um, 
our pizza man was trying to take. Yeah. When he got the collar put on him. So this is the same street. Um, at this point, they they show the letter and the number one, there's like points on this letter, the suicide note that he didn't go through with. Number one is this doesn't have anything to do with the Brian Wells case. We find out at this point also that Bill's lived in this house for 55 years. It was his parents' house. They'd wanted him to sell the house. His family had wanted him to sell the house because he'd been living there for free since his parents died. And there was apparently a bunch of money and he was the executor of the will and all this money was gone. Like no one knows where this money went, right? So, okay, I have a theory that I'm just going to throw out right now. Okay. They had mentioned that the pizza man was into some gambling with also the other pizza man, I believe. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying their names, but like the two pizza guys apparently gambled together and the landlady had had this theory that maybe he owed a bunch of money and that's the only way that he might've needed money in something like a bank heist. Probably spit it all on ladies' fucking legs. This is very true. Well, that's- Leg fucking. Separate people. I think Bill was in on the leg fuck. I think Bill was organizing leg fuck orgies. With with the pizza guys? Allegedly. Allegedly. So I think it has something to do with all this money being blown. But he blew all this money. And so his family's like, you need to sell this house and get out of it. He tells them he puts it up for sale for $90,000. He does put it up for sale, but he puts it up for $250,000. <laughs> Way more than anyone would ever get. No one's going to buy this house. They try to tell him it's too expensive. One of the guys, one of the detectives points out, that $250,000 is the exact amount they were trying to get in the heist. So something about $250,000. Bill had a roommate, and mm. just after the robbery attempt, this guy named Roy Stockton, he leaves right after the robbery. He's first brought up through Marjorie's prison calls. Yeah, she mentions him. And he was apparently a wanted man for raping a disabled teenager. Yeah. The FBI eventually find him, but they do not connect him to the bank heist. Bill is essentially not directly connected to the bank heist either. So both of them are cleared. The The narrator tries to go and meet Bill, and he goes to Bill's house, and no one answers. And then he sits across the street for a bit with a camera, and a van pulls in the driveway. A bl- there's a blue van sitting in front of the house. There's a blue van sitting in front of the house, and then this kind of bluish-grayish van pulls into the driveway. Either one of these vans could be the van that the cops saw that day waiting at the final point. He, t- he put his camera down and approached Bill, and Bill would not talk to him. You hear Marjorie's saying on the phone that she thinks Bill's going to drop dead. She predicted it. And you can tell this is all after the fact. You def- oh, yeah. You definitely get clued in that Bill is dead, even before they say it. And Ray talks about how later in his years, Bill became really mean, lost a lot of weight, went to the hospital. The feds went to talk to Bill one last time to ask about the bombing. The big no sign. Yeah, like, no, I did not do it. This woman in Gloria Bishop was jailed with Marjorie, and she says that she confessed to cellmates that she killed Jim Roden and that she would always shave her eyebrows for a very long time. It was making it a point to look crazy in front of the guards and normal in front of the, the prisoners. Yeah. But she ends up pleading. She pleads a deal, tells them everything, full confession, and she gets sent off to the nut house for seven years where she says the food is better. She's in the psych ward, which means no one can get to her. Reporters can't get to her. No one can talk to her. Trey writes to Marjorie. Yeah. They have been in contact for for years. Okay, question. If reporters and people couldn't get to her, how could he get to her? He wrote to her. 
OJ6261. Oh, so just no more phone calls. Yeah. But he wrote to her and she Mm -hmm. started writing back. Eventually, he gets to talk with her directly. That's where we leave off for this episode. So let's get into episode three. Say tray fromage. <laughs> Say tray domage. <laughs> this is episode three. Eyebrows. There's no eyebrows. It's like negative eyebrows. There's a video interview. It's a lot of Marjorie talking in this one. Yeah, so she Trey is there, but she's also talking to her attorney, which is how he was able to set this up. As part of their agreement of her to give him information, he had to set up this video conversation between her and her lawyer. She said, I'm pretty normal. Sure, I'm bipolar, but so is Lincoln and Churchill. They talk about star signs and shit. She said that she has a genius IQ. And when he asked her about James Roden, she's like, yeah, I shot and I killed him. He threatened to kill me. He had been for 10 years. The Roden's death didn't have anything to do with Wells. Again, offering this information before asked. When asked about the body in the freezer, she said that Bill said to her that I can't get him out until I finish my project. Business project. Business project. And Marjorie offers information in exchange for a prison move closer to where her money is stationed and her lawyer. After... They went out through all her junk again. They found this letter that she wrote that was really, really angry to the PNC Bank, which is the bank that the pizza man robbed. Then that led them to go question her again about this because she was upset that the bank gave her dad some money that she thought was hers or something from a P.O. box. The reason I wanted to bring this up is because when the cops go talk to her before she asks to be moved, I don't know what his exact title is, but Jerry... The cop. Jerry the Fed. Jerry the Fed. He's a Fed. I like him a lot. He's all smiles, Jerry. You can tell Jerry's having a good time. He's a real charismatic guy. He compares going to see Marjorie as though he were Clarice Starling going to visit Hannibal Lecter. A little heavy-handed, That's Jerry. a little... That's, that's trying to be a little too cinematic. And this is also on the directors for just... You didn't need that. It was like... No. That's like such... Schlock. No, but so they move her, but she doesn't give him any new info. Jerry can't help it. The documentary filmmakers know better. But maybe they wanted to put that in to just show like how dramatic everyone is being about this. I did love this. Trey showed this fanny pack that he used to carry around all the time with a bunch of recorders and wires in it so that if Marjorie called him, he could record their conversations wherever he was. I'm a fan of fanny packs, but apparently it was really weird for him to be wearing one and all his friends thought he was a weirdo. Marjorie talks about a blue van and how it was towed off until Bill was cleared of involvement and then towed it back. Earlier FBI footage of Bill's place shows some kind of drawing of some components or something. Oh, yeah. That matched how the bomb was made. When all this is happening, part of it, too, is that they... Trey took that video of Bill's house. He shows the video to Officer Lamont, who was the guy who saw the van that day across the trees and he when he saw that van he was like that's the van bill's friend ray his best friend Aww. matches some handwriting ray is he's the only one that is seems to be broken hearted i felt so bad for him he actually said i feel like i didn't know my own best friend they were friends for 30 or 40 years yeah and you can tell that they were tight yeah but this was bill sometimes in life Complete strangers can know an aspect of someone that 
people wouldn't tell their best friend or show their best friend because they would just always be a little different around this person because that person brings out something maybe positive. Maybe Ray brought out something positive in Bill. Maybe Bill didn't want Ray to know all that stuff about him. Because Bill liked Ray. And he liked the way Ray treated him. Just because they're not shitty to you doesn't mean they're not shitty. You know who is shitty? Geraldo Rivera. <laughs> Geraldo shows up summer of 2005. It's the summer of 2005. Oh, yeah. I didn't know there was an oh yeah at the end of that, that song. Was, that was my, who sang that, Brian Adams? Oh, summer of 65. <laughs> You Did you doing? just give Okay, yeah. 2005. Yeah, you can't do it. It doesn't work, right? So he basically finds this person who says that on the day of the heist, he was driving down the road near where it happened, and he saw a woman in a gold car driving the wrong way on the street, and that she looked crazed, and he made eye contact with her, and that it was Marjorie. This is this guy, and then another guy later pins her at a gas station. It's just random people witnesses who actually seem credible based on how things are lining up have talked about how they see they'll have never met marjorie and when they see her once you cannot forget this face yeah because she doesn't have eyebrows and she's weird-eyed and probably will talk to you for 10 minutes the guy that sees her at the phone booth with bill is a ups guy who rando sees this story on an episode of unsolved mysteries Uh is that what that show is I think Unsolved Mysteries is gone. It's not Unsolved Mysteries. Was gone by the time America's Most Wanted or something. America's Most Wanted. Did that that still happen in 2005? I think it was going on in the 2000s, but it got canceled somewhere in there. Well, he, and I I just want to make sure that this man is not related to Geraldo Rivera anyway, because he actually specifically said he didn't call America's Most Wanted because he didn't want his name to be out there. Like he didn't want people to know who he was. He just called the FBI directly and said, I saw this woman and I saw this man and this man was wearing overalls, which Bill wore all the time. Yeah. Uh, Marjorie is a liar who is very malleable. Yeah. I believe she's I mean, I believe she made up this whole thing. Like, it's she did this, in my opinion. And she's lying about everything. But then some new fact comes out, and she goes, well, yeah, I was on the street. I don't remember driving the wrong way. I'm sure I was driving somewhere. Well, yeah, I was at the gas station at the phone booth with him. He asked me to meet him there because we were working on something else together. Like, she has an excuse for everything as it comes up, but she still says it's not that. It's It's not related. It's too much explanation. Yeah. If you went to the gas station that day, but you weren't involved in a fucking bomb plot, right? Mm -hmm. Then it's just a day where you went to the gas station. You wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, I was there. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I don't know. That's one of those debatable things. Like, some people don't agree that you shouldn't remember the things that happened on a crazy day because like if it's a day that a tragedy happens you would kind of everything that day would sear into your memory but different people work different ways her soulmates have notes on a lot of shit that she's saying they're saying that marjorie killed jim because he knew about the bomb and they talked about this thing where she said it's not like we didn't measure this was in notes there was a woman named kelly michaela i believe is how you say her name or makala she literally took notes sitting across from marjorie marjorie knew she was taking notes i guess marjorie didn't fucking care didn't think it would matter she wrote down things that marjorie was saying and one of them was it's not like he we didn't measure his neck for the collar it's a weird statement because the collar looked like a big handcuff 
Yeah. It looked like it had adjustable sizes, like unless his neck was particularly weird, which it seemed like Brian just had a normal neck. I mean, what is to measure? I guess just to make sure that it would be big enough. Yeah. Like maybe just this is the diameter so it will fit around him. I don't know. But it implies that not only she was involved, but that Brian Wells was involved. She um, pins Floyd Stockton. Remember Floyd Stockton is the fucking creep that raped a disabled teenager. Right. So he's in jail now. And he's being interviewed. And the agents pointed out that he seemed very stiff and did not say anything and would not talk. Ken Barnes, that guy comes back. Fishing buddy. He calls himself Cocaine Ken, apparently. They find out that Ken had a mutual friend of Wells, a sex worker named Jessica Hoopstick. I'm sorry, Hoopstick. Wells apparently, I couldn't believe this, Wells would drive Jessica to Ken's house, have sex with her upstairs, pay her she would go downstairs and buy cocaine from ken and that was like the arrangement that they had and ken's has a hoarder house it's yet another hoarder ken says that marjorie asked ken to kill her dad and apparently ken had mentioned this in 2003 when he was first interviewed but they didn't really look deep into that yeah it just kind of went off the radar also those the notes that the woman took in prison got put in a drawer for years that like said snitch file or something yeah like there were clues that happened around the time but they just got snuffed out or not paid attention to or put in a drawer marjorie's plan was to rob the bank to get money to pay him to kill her dad because when she said hey will you kill my dad he goes it'll cost you and she says how much and he says $250,000. Trey goes and meets Marjorie's dad, but he hasn't told Marjorie because she might be uh, not all about it. Not until this episode is there any mention of Marjorie's parents. Trey tells Harold that he's the motive, that he might be the motive behind this thing. And he said that he's heard that Marjorie has been wanting to have him killed. And so he's written her out of the will like a long time ago because of her crazy shit. He said that he has given his money away to friends and family and church people because that was her complaint was that he was giving away her inheritance. But he said he gives away money because he doesn't really have a lot to do. And if he's not helping people, then he's not doing anything. And it was very sweet. He said that they used to be very close but when she got older and had mental disorders, they just got very heart sick. And you got the feeling that, like any other home back in the day, uh, when someone has mental issues, often it's just not dealt with very well. Yeah, he said she'd always been a liar and she didn't know the meaning of love. That's a, a quite a thing to say. I know. The way they ended up taking care of her, again, like you said, is sort of an old school way of doing it, is you just kind of pretend like everything's okay. And when she can't hold down a job or take care of herself, you just pay her way. Marjorie is now obsessed with Ken Barnes because Ken Barnes is talking. So now every correspondence and every interview and every letter from this point is all about discrediting Ken Barnes. Right. And so the cops are like, let's go for a drive and you show me everything that happened that day and let's talk more about it. Right. And so they get in the car. Actually, on the way in the car, there's a reporter and the reporter's asking these questions. And Marjorie's doing a real good job not answering anything because Marjorie likes to talk. Right before she gets in the car, she says she was framed and they said, who framed you? And she said, Bill and the government framed me. <laughs> well, Marjorie's riding along drinking Diet Cokes with Fed Jerry. Eating pretzels. Retracing some crime scenes. She says 
and she's babbling on and on that Bill asked her for two timers. Two kitchen timers. And that she provided. And then right after she said that, she was like, oh, shit, interview over. Because that is a fact that was never in the public. Yeah. That's not something they ever told anyone. She, in that moment, proved that she knows what's up. Ken confessed, and Marjorie stated that her house was once robbed. Well, apparently it was robbed by Ken and some of his friends because Marjorie... Owed him some money. She had a lot of money from court cases and stuff she'd taken from her dad, but she was paranoid of banks, so they robbed. Yeah. She got robbed. He admitted it, but nothing ever happened. Ken also, finally... In December 9th, 2005... Confesses to knowing about the entire scheme and says that Marjorie was the mastermind. Yep. Let's finish this shit up. Last episode. Okay, we have now finished part four. Wow. Of Evil Genius. Episode four is called Confessions. Ken Barnes confesses. Yeah, he lays out who's at the meeting. So he says that it's Bill Rothstein, Marjorie Deal, Floyd Stockton. Brian and that other dude, the pizza dude. Panetti. Yeah. So Brian Wells and Panetti. And Panetti was the other pizza guy who apparently committed suicide or overdosed. We don't know how he died. So of this list already, of the people he says were at this meeting, Marjorie's in jail. Bill is dead. Stockton is in jail. Peretti is dead and Wells is dead. They said that, Ken, I guess, made it sound like that Brian knew that there was going to be some robbery or something going on, but describes a scene where the thing is, they accost him, basically. He brings a pizza. According to Ken, Brian knows this is going to go down, and they put the shit on him anyway, and he freaks out a little bit. Ken says that he didn't know the thing was going to go off. It was supposed to be a fake. Marjorie and Bill made it real. Yeah, he said no one ever knew it was supposed to be real. He also confesses in this that on the day of the heist, Marjorie came to his house and he actually drove Marjorie or they went together to this place across the street called the Eaton Pack to watch the heist go down through binoculars. So he says that he was with her when it happened and she totally knew it and was watching it, like observing the whole thing. The feds talked to Stockton in Washington State where he's locked up. He ended up scoring a big deal immunity. This uh, child rapist got immunity to turn on Marjorie. He Um, confesses to actually putting the device on Brian. Yeah, but he said that Bill ordered him to do it. Panetti's role is not really clear, even though Ken put him at the pre-robbery meeting. Personally... I just never believed that part. No, I don't I don't understand what was going on with him. And we can get into it more later. But I feel like now he might have just been a bystander who was just asking what happened to his friend. The holes that Ken and Floyd never filled in were who wrote the notes, mm-hmm. whose idea it actually was at the beginning. Neither one of them seemed to know whether it was uh, Bill or Marjorie who originally came up with the idea, why Panetti was involved, and how Wells was recruited. The thing about Brian being a co-conspirator, and at this point, the federales pretty much consider him, they take this testimony, they consider him a co-conspirator. They do. If he's a co-conspirator, they can't raise the death penalty on them. Right, because it's not truly murder if he was in on it. And at this point, I've said a few times, this is what I sort of thought 
was happening just because the whole thing was so odd. Brian's family is not happy about it. When the authorities are taking press conferences and describing how Brian is considered a co-conspirator, family's yelling, liar. And yeah. Brian, Brian's brother is adamant that Brian is not involved. And of course, you understand why the family, because Brian is a victim. Mm-hmm. At this point, if he did know about the robbery, didn't really seem like he knew he was going to have a bomb around his neck. Exactly. Which, And that was also my theory, was that if he was involved in the planning of it, that would describe sort of the nonchalant attitude he seemed to have. But as we've learned, he was also just sort of a very, like, easygoing, like, dude. And maybe even after they put the collar on him, whether he was involved or not, I don't believe he ever thought it was a real bomb. I don't believe he ever thought he was actually going to die. His family's not happy about it. You understand why. But you do also understand why the feds might think this is true. Definitely. And so then it becomes a question of, is Marjorie capable of standing trial? So she's going to be charged for this. She's going up to court. They offer her a plea and she declines it. Floyd, the child rapist, can't make the trial because he's having heart surgery. And Marjorie cannot hold back how happy she is about that. She's continuously having phone conversations with Trey, the producer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is after months of medication and psychiatric treatments and they declared her competent, and which is just unbelievable in and of itself. But in the courtroom... Marjorie yells at Trey to come to the other side of the courtroom. Says, you're on the wrong side of the courtroom, Trey. Get over here. And everybody was kind of fascinated by that. Yeah. How nice she was to him. We meet the courtroom artist. This guy was amazing. He might be my favorite part of this whole thing. There are these... Seeing his drawings and his art. And he's describing like his thought processes and why certain pictures look the way he did. Yeah, like how he started out thinking of her as more of an animal and wanting to capture that, like, kind of crazed side of her. But then as she confessed, not confessed, I'm sorry, as she gave her testimony, she started becoming a more real person. And there were, like, softer pieces to her that he started bringing out in these pictures. It seemed like people went from lock her up to, huh, maybe there's something about this. There was a question I had about something that they said, and they didn't expound on it, but... Everything we've been told so far is that she had a pretty okay childhood. I know she didn't have a lot of friends, but her parents like doted on her to the point of like spoiling her to where she couldn't take care of herself. But she apparently got up on the stand and said that she had a really terrible childhood and almost cried about it. I don't know if she connected that with her parents or with the fact that she was balls nuts and probably did get picked on a lot growing up. For sure. I just thought it was a weird like side note. But it doesn't matter because the jury finds her guilty. Yes. Of conspiracy to commit robbery, armed robbery, and the use of a destructive device, but not for the murder of Brian. No, we should mention that Jessica Hoopsick did show back up at this trial. The reason I want to mention this is because after the trial, she was very vague. She didn't commit to anything. She didn't really do anything, but that she'd heard a conversation with a woman about robbing a bank. Trey tried to meet with her afterwards, and they set up a time to meet. She texted him later and said, I'm not going to meet you. But her sign-off on her text message was Jessica, number one white girl. (laughs) Uh, After she's found guilty, Marjorie turns to a lawyer and says, you didn't do your job. Marjorie talks to Trey later and talks about, and I believe her, she's legitimately shocked that she was found guilty. She expected to get off. 
She was sentenced to life plus 30. Floyd, the the child rapist, is free now. Yeah. He's married. Ken's locked up. He says he likes prison because there's no drugs or anything. Yeah, he's like clean and has a place to sleep and he feels good about it. He somehow is making it work for him. 2013, Marjorie and Trey continue to talk on the phone and there's a very interesting just note. He keeps just showing clips of their recordings or playing clips of their recordings. And at one point she signs off the phone call by saying, Sugar loves you. (laughs) So to her, I feel like they had this very... It could have been one of the most intimate relationships she had at this point. Trey said he thinks Brian is innocent. And Marjorie, who says she never knew Brian, is flabbergasted at this statement. Yeah. Said that he was a co-conspirator. And she gets very upset at the fact that Trey thinks Brian is innocent. And she starts throwing Brian under the bus like he's 46, couldn't get a proper job, hanging out with crack whores. He's a total loser. But she doesn't know him. No. So why does she care? Why does it matter to her what anyone thinks about Brian? Well, because as she also brings up in that conversation, if he didn't have anything to do with it, then everybody who was involved could be tried for murder. True. It's for her defense. Yeah. That he is, even if she doesn't know him or not. Oh, but it doesn't matter because she she wouldn't be up for murder anyway because she didn't do it anyway. (laughs) But if she were, ugh. She rants and hangs up. She's pissed at Trey. That was their first argument. But guess who gets locked up where Marjorie is for drug charges? It's Jessica Hoopsick. Yep. Jessica talks about how she was friends with Brian. She talks to Trey. Trey actually writes her. She was really good friends with him. He knew her family. He used to take her grocery shopping. She said that she wouldn't say that they were in love. But that there were very special feelings between them and that he was one of the truly good guys. Marjorie confronts Jessica and Jessica says Marjorie threatened her. Marjorie finds out that Trey's been talking to Jessica. (laughs) Jessica gets out on a work release program and asks for an interview with Trey. We meet on camera instead of just mugshots, Jessica hoops it. Yeah, she actually shows up and it looks like they're sitting in a car talking. Starts out, you can tell she's nervous and she's very upset, but she says she finally needs to tell what happened because Wells was an innocent guy and a really good guy. According to her, Ken, Bill, and Marjorie were planning to rob the bank. And Ken asked Jessica to find someone that they could scare into doing it for them. They weren't really going to hurt him. They weren't going to do anything real to him. He'd be totally fine, but they needed somebody to be like their scapegoat. And they would give her $5,000. And she's an addict, so five grand is very appealing. Yeah, and... She said, Brian's a pushover, and she names Brian. They ask her for his work schedule. Which she knew. That's how close they were. Then he asked her about the pre-meeting, and she says she truly doesn't believe he could have possibly been at any pre-meeting. She was with him for two hours the day before. and said that he had to go to work at four. Yeah, and she was with him from 12 to 2.30. She said he had no idea that he was going to walk in. He All he, was going to, all he went there do, to do was deliver a pizza. Trey says he kind of held this information back because he was trying to verify. And so he calls Ken and confronts Ken about it. At first, Ken says Jessica's lying. And then he confesses that Brian didn't know. Yeah, because the big question is, if Brian knew, why when he delivered the pizzas, was he standing around waiting to be paid? 
if he was in on it, he wouldn't have expected to get any money. He would have been like, here's some pizzas, dudes. Let's go rob a bank. That's not what happened. Marjorie's confronted. She gets pissed. And then we get into a bunch of shit about how Bill loved Marjorie. Yeah, it's sort of the why did this happen. I really didn't give a fuck. I really didn't either. There was like some green duffel bag with all of Bill's prized possessions. I don't care. There was like a dog-eared page of a Peter, Paul, and Mary sappy love song about some man who unrequited love to a woman. Yeah, fuck Bill. (laughs) Who cares about Bill's feelings? Bill was the only man that Marjorie didn't kill. Basically, so I guess he thought it was true love. I guess that's special. Ray did say that Marjorie had a hold on him. She was like inside of his brain. The documentary's over. We watched Brian get blown up one more time. It's oh, God. Out. Okay, I kind of skipped over that part. It's blurred out this time. Maybe it's from news footage. I didn't want to see it again, but I'm kind of glad that they played it again because... And this is going to kind of get into how I feel about the documentary, which I know we're almost done. But it was really interesting to me now knowing definitively that he really didn't know. And now knowing more about him and the kind of person that he was. And he wasn't freaking out because he wasn't a person who would have ever freaked out about anything, really. He was trying to just explain. He seemed like a simple dude. Yeah, he seemed like a simple, straightforward dude. And it was actually, the first time it was shocking, the second time it was very upsetting. Before the credits roll, there's Texas said that Jessica Hoopsick apparently had a baby. She claims it's Brian's. And according to the text, it kind of looks like Brian. Yeah. Marjorie would die on April 4th, 2017 of cancer. And Mm. that was our first documentary series. Good job. Now, at the beginning of the episode, I said that there was going to be a super stunning, exciting announcement. I totally forgot. (laughs) I really forgot. It's true. This is a stunning revelation. Now, we don't rate in the stars rating scale. Oh, no. Are you okay? I'm just afraid you're going to say we're not using hard sogs. We usually rate in the... Hard sogs. Hard sog rating scale. But that's what we do for single feature documentary films. Okay. Now, the Herzog rating scale, that label encompasses an entire variety of things, and it's named the Herzog rating scale, but depending on what you're talking about, it'll change. Okay. Like basic uh, feature films, like make make them up fictional films, uh, which cover a wide variety. We measure those in Clint Howard's. Right. Songs, Rebecca Black's. Mm-hmm. I believe Stuart and I now rate good people in Donny Osmond's, Arsenio Hall's for television shows. But Herzog, no, Herzog is rated in documentary movies. Documentary series, on the other hand, are rated in another classic documentary filmmaker. One who's had series in the past. Can I guess? And one who actually has a fairly recent Netflix series now. Errol Morris. We rate documentary series in Errol Morris's. Yes! Angela, I'm going to give this one through five Errol Morris's. <laughs> You're going to give this one through five Errol Morris's. Gladly. Or, or Errol's. Errol Morris's. <laughs> and we will combine these for best out of ten Errol Morris's. Angela, what did you think of this movie? Or uh, this documentary series? Okay. Evil Genius. I thought this documentary series was very good. I liked the way it was sectioned out. In the four parts, I thought it was very smart, the way it was organized. I was being pulled in different directions. I don't always really love that. 
But that was also kind of the way that the investigators were figuring it out, you know, as far as thinking that Brian was involved and then not finding out until later that he wasn't. Like, there were definitely, like, secrets. Like, it unfolded in the way that people kind of knew the information. So I appreciated that. And that's just, I guess, kind of the natural, like, roller coaster of it. We did see the documentary filmmaker, docu-series maker. Usually that's a negative for me. I was okay with it in this because he weirdly didn't really show himself talking ever. He just showed himself kind of going through the letters or like sitting at his computer. Or he showed himself showing his recording stuff in his fanny pack. You heard his voice more than anything. Yeah, you heard his voice a whole lot. And it seemed like it couldn't really be helped the way he was in the story. Yeah, because he was talking to her on the phone. But it was very interesting that even in those phone calls, he didn't really play his audio. And in the video with the attorney, he didn't play his audio. You know, he kind of did try to let, he did the narration, but everything else was like their words. I think it was solid. There were some cuts that I didn't completely, well, like we mentioned, we thought were weird. Like there were some things that people said that seemed kind of flowery that could have been cut out. I don't think it needed to be four hours necessarily because I think it could have been an interesting solid two hour documentary, but I understand the artistic choice to break it down into these four like chapters and wanting you to consume it in these four chapters. But short compared to a lot of other documentary series. Totally, totally. So I feel like this one is a solid 3.5. 3.5. Errol Morris's. Errol Morris's. I can see how you came to that score. Now this movie, or I'm sorry, this documentary series. <laughs> Or docu-series. Docu-series, Evil Genius. It's about these smart people who did a crazy thing mm -hmm. and someone lost their life. And in the movie, you get all these people talking about, and, and you have to acknowledge that there's some intelligence there. There's also mental illness there. There's a lot of hoarding. And there's a straight-up murder of a guy who lived alone, was obviously a very lonely man, a harmless man, who ended up dying in a horrible way by people who are often pronouncing how brilliant they fucking are. Yeah. Okay, you're brilliant, but but for what? I mean, this whole robbery thing, there's no way that shit was ever going to work. He barely got out of the bank parking lot. Did you really expect this whole thing to work out in this way? You didn't accomplish a daring bank robbery. You just came up with a weird way to murder someone. Yeah. And you picked low-hanging fruit, poor Brian, who was a simple guy and a good guy, but someone who is obviously very easy to manipulate. And his landlady said as much that he was a good guy, but could be very easy to manipulate. We're dealing with people who are mentally ill, but they made it a point to say, or a judge, when he was sentencing Marjorie, says that it is understood that the defendant is very mentally ill, but based on what she's been diagnosed with, there are plenty of people who are bipolar, who don't strap bombs to people's fucking necks and don't shotgun their husbands or boyfriends. There are plenty of people on this planet that don't do that. Marjorie and Bill, they're, they're, they have to exclaim to the world that they're intelligent because no one's going to just accuse them of that because what are they doing with all that brainiac power? She's like the queen of shit mountain. Congratulations, you're the smart queen of shit mountain. And he's like the king of shit mountain. And yeah, you you were able to deflect and not get locked up, but then you but then Bill went off and he died of a terrible cancer. It's like he didn't fucking win. Like nobody won here. Weirdly enough, Ken might have won because he got clean. 
Ken seemed the most well-adjusted. Floyd may be okay, too. He didn't want to talk anymore. Yeah. He's, like, married and living his life. Who would marry that guy? I have no clue. Now that I know the whole story, I remember hearing about the story of a pizza guy with a bomb around his neck. I knew that bomb went off before I started watching this documentary series. Yeah. Because one of the few things I did know about this case, a pizza guy had a bomb around his neck, and it went off. Actually, in weird internet searchers in the past, have seen that footage of that bomb exploding. I didn't bring it up to you because I didn't want it to affect your viewing experience. Right, because I didn't know we were going to see it. So when we're sitting to watch Evil Genius, I'm like, okay, I'm really going to get that story completely unraveled because beyond that, I didn't know anything about it. And yeah, it was weird. And I'm not going to say it wasn't entertaining. I'm not going to say it wasn't good because in a lot of ways, it was really good. They built the bomb. I guess that's a very smart thing to do, but... I don't know. Are you judging the documentary on the fact that their crime was stupid? Well, I haven't gotten to my score yet. Yeah. But I'm criticizing their crime. I am saying yeah. their crime is stupid. Well, yeah, I agree. And the documentary, to me, re- revealed that. Yeah. As far as intelligence or the nature of evil genius, this is some overrated shit because these people were losers in a fucking half. Yeah. Uh, big fucking deal, Marjorie. I wish she was alive so that maybe... Uh, someone in jail could be like, hey, I listen to this podcast talking about your documentary and they're talking shit about you, but she's not alive. Do you think that he would have released this while she was still alive? Or do you think she died and he went, oh, I'm going to put this shit out now? Because he seemed very hesitant to question her. He like didn't want to lose the relationship with her as long as he thought he could still get info. I don't know. I I, I didn't read up on it or yeah. anything, but... But you know what? It is an interesting story, but I don't think this is one of those true crime stories that I'm really going to regale people with at a cocktail party. In the in the end, I don't think it's all that. I just think it's just a bunch of stinky creeps with some weird half-baked plan. And all that really happened was just some poor guy got blown up. So fuck Bill. Ah! Fuck Marjorie. Ah! Fuck Ken. Ah! Fuck Kitty Fucker Floyd. Heart goes out to Brian Wells's family because he was an innocent. I felt like you actually gave it a really good score. I'm always matching what the other person says, <laughs> but I just get where the person's coming from. Yeah. Or in my own way, I kind of reached that same number in my own way too. But I agree. It's a 3.5 Errol Morris movie. I actually thought you talked me down to a three. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there w- it was well executed, but as far as like these people, it was like, I don't, fuck Marjorie, I don't want to tell this bitch's story. Yeah. All these people are awful. But you know what I think is important is that we now know that Brian was innocent. We but didn't we know did. that. We did tell that bitch's story. <laughs> we did tell that bitch's story. But that's the thing I think that gets lost is it fucking shouldn't be her story. No. It shouldn't be Bill's story. It's Brian's story. And now we know that Brian was innocent. And I think that is why it's important that this story was told is so that it clears that the fuck up for his family, for Jessica, for this possible child. Because unless you have someone tell this story in this way, if you just did, if someone just did a news article on this or like something on the news, no one's going to fucking pay attention to that. But the people are watching this. The movie is well edited. I like the narration. Yeah. I thought Trey's presence in it was actually well done. Mm-hmm. I like that it's only four episodes. There is a lot to like about this movie, the docuseries, excuse me. It's well executed. But as far as taking in all the subject matter, now that I know the story, I'm giving it a 3.5.
Errol Morris's, which brings it. You take. Are you are you still on three point five or are you a three? I'm still on three point five. So this makes it a, a fine seven out of ten Errol Morris's. Yeah. Sounds good to me. And that's our discussion, our very first docu-series discussion. I hope to do more. High five. I also do have to say it was sort of super interesting recording right after watching. I think I'll have more thoughts on this tomorrow, but it'll be too late, so. It's a little different. There's always something you'll forget to say. Sure. I wouldn't mind doing an episode where we revisit some of the movies that we've talked about. That'd be cool, especially if there's updates on anything Mm -hmm. like if we ever find anything else out about like gypsy blanchard yeah for sure the american movie guys make another movie you figure they should have by now that movie american movies is almost going to be uh 20 years old next year wow still one of the best but that's our review of the netflix docuseries evil genius by barbara schroeder and trey borzellieri Congratulations to Errol Morris for now being a part of the rating system. Hell, Errol Morris. Maybe we'll do Wormwood at some point. But that's it. Seven out of ten Errol Morrises for Evil Geniuses. Evil Genius. <laughs> I almost said baby, baby, genius. baby geniuses. <laughs> I think you almost did that. <laughs> All right. Keep on docking. Test recording. Won't you test my ball sack today? That's not cool. Won't you test my ball bags every way? I'm a fucking eight year old. Yeah, I mean, not even an eight year old. It's more like 12, right? 12's pretty good. I guess. Are you ready? Test, test, test. One more. Say something. Something. I took something, something. Off. Oh, you took something. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're missing your song. Uh, yeah. I used to play the lay on Malalai Benjalalo until a lily got a lot. Barololo. Look.